0: Matthew chapter 28, beginning in just a moment in verse 16. We're continuing this series entitled, I Love My Church, and I do hope that is true for you as it is true for me. We love this church. We love being here together. We love worshiping together. We love fellowship But I hope it's more than that and that's what we've been looking at over the past few weeks is it's not just about enjoying being here There are some very particular reasons we should love the church You see God designed the church in a very unique way. Yeah, it's messy at times, but it sure is beautiful And he's given us the treasure of the church. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. That is the gospel He's told us what the gospel is. He's told us what we're supposed to be doing with the gospel Last week, we looked at the model of the church. We talked about church leadership, talked about deacons. We talked about what it meant to be a pastor, what it meant to be a member of this church, and we also talked about uh, what discipleship should look like in the life of the church. This morning, I'm really excited to look at the mission of the church, the mission of the church. You see, parting words are important. Some of you may remember the last conversations that you had with loved ones. They may have assured you of their love for you, their relationship with the Lord, or they may have even given you some very important final instructions. Whatever the case, these last words were important to you. This past week, I got a troubling phone call from my dad, my grandfather was at the emergency room with some heart complications. He's 81 years old. Um, He's not in the best of health. We kind of saw some some things coming down the road for him. He's also a very grumpy, grumpy man. Um, (laughs) As I heard about him going to the emergency room, I began praying for the doctors immediately. As it turns out, Dr. Jackson ended up being one of his doctors, and so we, we shared some laughs together about that. But I remember as I heard about, we didn't know what the complications were. We didn't know how uncertain it was. I began thinking about some of those conversations I'd had with my granddad. What were some of the last things we talked about? Well, we like to talk about NASCAR and racing. We like to talk about Georgia football, the Atlanta Braves. That's what our conversations were always filled with. And I began to be troubled by there wasn't any more depth to our relationship than that. I began to long for an opportunity to have some time with him. Now, as the Lord would have it, because he is so good, he is so gracious. My granddad just needed a pacemaker, he's doing well today, and we praise the Lord for that. But parting words are important. We come this morning to some of those last parting words in Matthew chapter 28 and verses 16 through 20. Except here they come from the mouth of Jesus, not because Jesus was gonna die. He had already died. He had, in fact, died and and risen from the dead three days later. But he was having some parting words with his disciples before he ascended into heaven. You see, Jesus had taught many things, many parables. He had shared encouragement and even rebuke to some of the religious leaders. But here, we find some parting words. And with his time here with 11 of his closest followers, he chose to share a very specific mission with them. But these words were filled with more meaning than just for those 11 men on a mountainside that day. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. The implication is for us as well. Jesus gave a very specific mission to the church. It wasn't just for the 11 men on the mountainside that day. It was also for us as his church You see, it's easy for us to get derailed or distracted by our own vision for the church, our own agendas, and to lose sight of what Jesus meant for the church to be all along. It's also easy for us to relegate this mission to somebody else and say, well, that's the pastor's job. That's the job of the missionaries that we send our money to. It's the job of those who are going to hand out these shoeboxes on the other side of the world. But the reality is what we find here is these words are for us as his church, my encouragement this morning is for all of us to have a different perspective concerning the mission of the church. It's not just for someone else to do. This wasn't just for these 11 men here. It wasn't just for the first century church, even. It's for us. With that in mind, would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's word? Very short passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 28. Beginning in verse 16 through the end of this gospel. The 11 disciples, they traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and he said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these parting words. We thank you for these instructions. We thank you for telling us clearly what we should be doing as we live our lives here on this earth. And God, I pray that we will each take personal account of what you've told us to do. That we'll find our part in this great mission you've called us to as the church. Let your word be clear. Lord, let your word be empowering and encouraging and convicting. By the power of your spirit, do something only you can do in this place. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we're going to be looking at the mission of the church and and, and taking some careful consideration really of verses 18, 19, and 20. But we're going to rewind a little bit because I think we often don't consider verses 16 and 17 as well. So we're going to spend a little while there. Let's consider this first. Jesus shares the mission with a certain audience. Jesus shares the mission with a certain audience. Audience. He had a very specific audience there on the mountainside. We find. First of all, notice this in verse 16, it very clearly states the eleven disciples traveled to Galilee. So we find these disciples gathered there, and what we begin to understand as we look even closer is that we find his audience was close to him. His audience was close to him. Notice that the audience is clearly defined in verse 16 as these disciples, but look back up at verse 10. There are some details covered here in relation to how these men related to Jesus. This is shortly after the resurrection, some ladies had went to the tomb and notice what Jesus tells them beginning in verse 10. It says then Jesus told them, "Do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there." These brothers they are called in verse 10. These disciples, they are then called in verse 16. Listen, they were very close to him. They knew him intimately. You see, although this was uh, the inner circle of Jesus' closest followers here, the implications reach to us even now as the church. You see, the designation of being called a disciple, it grows in usage throughout at the, the book of Acts as the church grows. There must be a closeness, an intimacy. We come to find. A disciple should be understood as one who follows after and seeks to learn from another. That's what it means to be a disciple. Some 250 times the word disciple is used in the Gospels and the book of Acts alone. This is a very important theme that comes to be developed throughout the New Testament. Just imagine the scene on that mountain. Don't miss this, and so I'm gonna spend a little bit of time here. Jesus had walked among the crowds. He had stood in Matthew chapter 5, and he had preached the greatest sermon ever recorded. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And hundreds had gathered, perhaps thousands had gathered, and certainly he had fed over 5,000 just a little while after. He had stood among the crowds. He, he had been rebuked by the crowds. He had been chastised by the crowds. And even later on, he would hang on a sinner's cross before the crowds. Although Jesus had many times stolen away alone to pray and be alone with maybe even just a close band of brothers, he was mostly among the crowds towards the end of his ministry. And yet, we find him here on this mountainside with just 11 men. Just as he had begun in a quiet and quaint manger at his birth, with just a few shepherds gathered there. Now, the end of his life, the end of his earthly ministry, we should say, it culminates with just 11 men. You see, I fear the reason we miss his call to the mission is because we're not walking with him. I fear the reason we miss miss the call or relegate the call to someone else's task is because we're not walking closely with Jesus. You see, the two really can't be separated, church. If you know him, you're on mission with him. There is no negotiation with those two. If you truly know him as Lord, guess what? You're following him. That's the call again and again and again of Jesus throughout the Gospels. It can't be just a Sunday only affair. No, it means that you live your life on mission. But secondly, notice this. They they weren't just close to him. We see this. His audience was called out by him. His audience was called out by him. We should pay close attention to the rest of verse 16 to see this it says the 11 disciples they traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them Now there's a lot of debate about what mountain this might have been there've been a lot of speculation I read commentary after commentary and there's about 19 different opinions about where they gathered that day But that's not the point The point is that it says they traveled this word traveled means that they deliberately went to a predetermined destination They weren't just wandering among the countryside. Listen, Jesus had clearly told them, although we don't know where it is, he had said, I want you to go here. It explicitly says that in verse 16, right? He says, they traveled to the mountain that Jesus had directed them to go to. Now, don't read past this too quickly. Although unclear as we read it now, it was not unclear to the disciples that day. They knew where they needed to be. They were called out by the Savior to eventually be sent by the Savior. Don't miss the sovereignty of God wrapped up in all of this, friend. Even this morning, 2,000 years later, as we read this very word of God, please understand, this is a divine appointment for the hundred or so people gathered in this room. As Jesus speaks to us as his church, he has directed you by his grace, by his providence to this occasion, to this moment. I would even dare say there are people in this room, it may be just one or two, who God is calling to mission to give your lives to the cause of Christ. So don't miss this. They went to the place they were told to go to, and you are here today. First Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10, Peter describes it this way. He says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood that word priest means to be his ambassador a holy nation a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light it's a divine appointment friend this is not just 30 minutes on sunday morning to take lightly this is serious and it's weighty in spite of all of this There's a beautiful truth hidden in verse 17 that I think needs to be plain. They were close to him. They were called out by him. But notice this. His audience was still uncertain of him. They were still uncertain. Let's look back at verse 17 to see this. When they saw him, they worshiped. There is no doubt there were... Some of those 11 on that mountainside that day, that when they saw Jesus, they fell to their their faces and they worshiped Jesus, and it was genuine worship. But you got to understand that what this clearly describes is there were some, even if it was only two, who still were uncertain. Perhaps they were wrapped up in the mysteriousness of this great event. Certainly they were wrapped up in the notion that Jesus was once dead and now he's alive. And they were still somewhat uncertain. No doubt, because this is troubling, some have argued that that something happened between verse 16 and 17, that there were a lot more people that came and showed up. Because we, we are troubled to consider the notion that surely the disciples weren't doubting. I mean, they were the ones walking with him. They were the ones who knew him most intimately. They were the ones who had seen his resurrected body even before this moment. Surely they weren't doubting there is no clear indication that the crowd had grown between verses 16 and 17. We can't read that into the passage. We're left to see this as just these still 11 men. There's a real implication here for us as well. I think many of us have put the faith of our biblical heroes on a pedestal that seems unattainable at times. You read in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith, you read about the faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all these great characters in Scripture, and you say, wow, what great men and women of renown. They had such a strong faith. Some of you think about your grandparents or your parents who raised you, and you, you've seen this witness of their faithful testimony, and you said, wow, what faith my grandmother had, what faith my grandfather had. And you look at that, and you say, well, that's not me. Just this past week I had some doubts some discouragement and I, I was troubled and, and I was trying to figure all this out on my own. Some of you walked into this room this morning and you're still trying to figure out something on your own and you have at once turned to Jesus. And yet you call yourself a follower of Jesus which is certainly, if you've trusted him as your Savior, is true. Can I encourage you just for a moment? Even some of those on the mountain that day with Jesus doubted. They were still uncertain. They would go on to do great things for the kingdom. Some of them would be great apostles and ambassadors in the church. But don't forget that they had a history of doubting the Lord. And we shouldn't be troubled by this. We should be encouraged. We read at the beginning of the service today that Thomas needed hard evidence and hard proof to believe that Jesus was in fact resurrected. He had looked at him and he said, I need to touch him to believe this. And on not just a few occasions, Jesus had said some very famous words to the disciples again and again, "O oh, you of little faith. And these were the ones walking with him. Remember Peter. Peter, he always had, a, had a, uh, this knack of putting a sock in his mouth. He's walking, he's in a boat, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water, and he says, Lord, if, if it's you, if it's really you, would you let me walk to you on the water? And the Lord says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water. This is an incredible event. Then it says he begins to sink. And Jesus grabs him by the hand and listen to what the Lord says to Peter. As he grabs him by the hand, he asks him this question. Why did you doubt? This is significant. You see, the word doubt is only used in the gospel of Matthew two times. In relation to Peter when he sank, and here in these parting words, it is clear that some still had reservations. Now, let's be careful. This was not a state of unbelief or atheism or disbelief, they were clearly in a state of tension. And that is likely the way you have felt as you live your own life as well. I remember when we were in the Philippines. We would, God had called us to go on mission with him, and everyone had celebrated us and put us on this pe- pedestal and said, wow, look at this young family. They're selling everything they got. They're a bunch of lunatics, and they're going to live in the jungle in Southeast Asia. We were a little crazy, let's just be clear, okay? We went and we followed God's call in our lives. I remember a typhoon came through our village, and it wrecked our community, and, and there were houses literally blown off their foundations. And God was good to us. We had a tree that fell on our house. And I was so discouraged. I'll just go ahead and say it. I was angry that this tree had fallen on our house. I remember when I saw the tree that fell on our house because I thought we had survived the storm with no damage. I saw the tree laying on my truck. And I threw my hat. We got any hat throwers in the room? Anybody done that? (laughs) That's right. I threw my hat. And I remember coming under such conviction later on because I had wavered in my understanding. God had been good, but my faith was weak. Listen carefully, church. Your seasons of uncertainty, frustration, and spiritual despair, they do not disqualify you from his calling on your life. When you walk through seasons of emptiness and loneliness, it does not mean that God cannot use you. It's in those moments of painful barrenness, in fact, that we find the greatest fruitfulness in our lives. Now that we understand the audience and that we are a part of that audience, let's listen close as we skip down to verse 19. This is really the heart of the passage. We see, secondly, this morning, Jesus defines the mission with certain instructions. He defines the mission with certain instructions. I like that Jesus spells out for us exactly how this should be taking place. Let's notice what he says. First of all, he says this. He instructs us towards ongoing activity. He instructs us towards ongoing activity. There's a lot of emphasis placed on that first word, that little two-letter word in verse 19, the word go. Now, what we're going to see is the real emphasis of this passage is not on going, but it's on making disciples. But let's talk about going for just a second. I think we misappropriate the thrust of its meaning. We tend to think that the mission of God somehow entails a sort of recklessness or unfettered boldness. That if we're going to be on mission with him, we've got to be a little bit crazy. But the truth is, this word to go is the same word that's used up in verse 16 where it's translated they traveled to the mountain. It's the same exact word. And what did they do? They traveled to the mountain and they were deliberate about where they were going. When God says, when Jesus says here, I want you to go, he's saying, I want you to deliberately set out on mission. I'm going to tell you where to go and how to go and how to get there and what to do when you get there. It's clear this isn't just for those who are a little bit reckless or kamikaze in their faith. You can be calculating, and I think that you should be. You should listen carefully to what God instructs you to do. Going should be done with great deliberation. But notice this also. This word, to go, we miss this in English. This word means an ongoing sort of activity. It's not a one and done type of affair. When he says to go, he means I want you to go and I want you to keep on going. I think sometimes we we read this passage and we, we, as pastors, we issue a call and we say, hey, we got this great mission trip coming up. We would love for you to sign up to to go with us on this mission trip. And I think people sign up on the mission trip, and and they go, and they come back, and they check that box, and they say, listen, I've been on an international mission trip. I have went. Look at me. Understand something. That's not what this means. It means that every single day you make a decision to keep on going. Going in the way that we are called to here does not mean that you should just, this should be a one and done event for you. It means every day that you wake up, you keep on going on mission, whether that is here in the heart of Cave Spring or somewhere in South Asia. Keep on going. But secondly, as he tells us to go, he also instructs us towards a global activity, a global activity. Notice that Jesus leaves no room for question here in verse 19. He says go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The nations defined in verse 19 are all those united by a common language, kinship, culture, or tradition. It's not just those who look like us and talk like us. No, he clearly says I want you to go to the nations. Go to the people, quite literally. As a Southern Baptist Church, we give generously to the International Mission Board. The International Mission Board is the missions-sending agency of the Southern Baptist Convention. They deploy hundreds upon thousands of missionaries all around the world today, whether that's in a short-term trip or for a career investment. They have identified that there are 11,946 unique people groups in the world. Almost 12,000 unique groups of people united by a common language, a common heritage, a common tradition, or values. Now, this is what's important. It's not just that there's nearly 12,000 of them. A little over 3,000 of them are what we call unreached and unengaged. What that means is that technical wording means this. There are 3,181 people groups who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ spoken. Almost 25% of these people groups that we've identified have never heard the name of Jesus. There are people even now who were born, they will live, and they will die having never heard the name of Jesus. I've got a great friend that I hope as a church we get to meet very soon He and I played high school football together. He graduated one year ahead of me. He went to seminary at Southeastern, where I recently graduated from as well. And he is an International Mission Board missionary serving in Kathmandu, Nepal. He tells me stories of coming up on these little villages and encountering people and sharing the name of Jesus with them, and they have no earthly idea who he's talking about. It is clear that more than ever before, the mission must have a global focus. We are not called, church, to just be the heart of Christ in the heart of Cave Spring. We are likewise called to be the heart of Christ to the ends of the earth. He tells us to make disciples. Well, let's consider that carefully. What does it mean to make disciples? Just a couple of things he defines here. First of all, he says we must call people to a singular allegiance. Notice what it says. He says, make disciples of all nations, Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's worth noting here that baptism is mentioned here for the very first time in Matthew's gospel since John was doing it way back at the beginning of his gospel. But it's given a more fuller meaning by Jesus himself because notice that Jesus describes baptism as that which marks one's absolute allegiance to the name, the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You've heard us when we baptize people here at First Baptist Church. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not an act of conversion, but it is an act of allegiance. It's a demonstration to the church that that is where your allegiance lies. Think of it this way. I remember when my grandmother passed away as a young boy. We went to the cemetery. My grandfather was still living. And I noticed on the the grave marker my family had ordered that there was my grandmother's name and it had the date she was born and the date that she died. And on the left, I was greatly disturbed because guess whose name was on the other side? My granddad's name. Here I am as a young boy, I'm thinking, he's standing right here. What is his name on there for? Made no sense to me. Boy, it had his name and it had his birth date and there was a dash and there was a blank. You've seen this before. Certainly, my grandfather was indicating that day that this is where his allegiance lies. It, it didn't mean that he died that day, but it did mean that this is his stake in the ground with this woman to be buried beside her. That's what baptism is. It's this visual demonstration to the church that this is where our allegiance lies, Notice also, as we make disciples, we must secondly do this, we must call people to absolute obedience. Jesus says very specifically, he says, I want you to teach them, in verse 20, to observe everything I have commanded you. Unfortunately, as we consider both of these ideas, this absolute, unwavering allegiance to one God, And as we consider what it means to have absolute obedience to this one God and everything he's told us to do, I fear that we have wavered on our commitment to teach those truths. We fail to call people to abandon their little G gods and solely trust in the Lord God. We fail to point out how their lives do not line up with the moral teachings of Jesus. There are some of you in this room today who who trusted in the Lord over the past year. You, You sat in my office with me. Or you talk to me on the phone and, and you made a decision to trust in Jesus. And those of you who, who had that opportunity and you made that decision, you can testify to this truth. In that conversation, we talked about some hard things as well. It wasn't just, hey, pray this prayer, trust in Jesus. No, we talked about the implications of that for us. There might have been some radical decisions that need to be made regarding your relationships. Maybe some vices. Maybe some things you wrestle with. Listen carefully the call to make disciples does not concern quantity so much as it concerns quality it is clear that he calls us to a particular fashion of disciple making so we've seen how Jesus shares this with a very defined audience we've seen how he tells us exactly what this should look like with certain specific directions but finally note this Jesus secures the mission with certain promises he secures the mission with certain promises We purposefully skipped verse 18 when we looked at it a moment ago. But you see, this passage, this commission is bookended by two incredible statements in Scripture. One that is, both of these made by Jesus himself, both of them given to them for assurances. Remember, they were doubting, and it says in verse 18, Jesus came near to them. He didn't push them away, and listen to what he says. He gives them an assurance. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What he says to them is this. He is able to keep his promises. He's able to keep his promises. We should consider this statement carefully. Notice first that this authority was not usurped from another. It was not taken by force by Jesus. No, what does he say? All authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and on earth. All of this is in fulfillment. If you want to jot down in this verse, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14. We find there he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. This directly pertains to Jesus and what he's talking about here. But also remember back in Matthew chapter 4 and verses 8 and 9. You see, early in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is tempted by Satan three different times. And in Matthew chapter 4, it says that Satan took Jesus up onto a hillside and he showed him all of the nations, all of the lands in front of him. And guess what he said? He said, if you'll just bow down before me now and worship me, Jesus, I will give you all of this. I can't help but think that all of this that Jesus is speaking now is in response to that. You see, by way of the cross, by way of faithful submission to the way of Calvary and his resurrection, Jesus was not just given authority on earth, but also in heaven. He's able to keep his promises. But secondly, he promises us his presence. He's able to keep his promises, friend. This is indeed the most powerful promise that Jesus spoke as he had these parting words, the last words he said to them. Even those standing there with reservations, he said this in verse 20 at the very end. He says, and remember. That word remember means that you literally put it at the front of your mind. He said, look at this. If you miss everything else, make sure you get this. I am with you always even to the end of the age. You see, throughout Scripture, it is clear that His presence implies our going. It is clear that when He tells us to go, He always tells us He's going with us. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 12, God calls Moses to go and deliver His people from bondage. And guess what He says? I will certainly be with you. I will never leave you. And in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5, as this baton is being passed of leadership to Joshua from Moses... He tells Joshua as well, no one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. I will be with you. Listen, church, the same God who made those promises with his very own voice to Moses and to Joshua and to these disciples here on this mountainside is the same God who makes that promise to us as well as his people. He says he'll never leave us. He'll never abandon us. Eleven disciples gathered with Jesus on the mountainside that day. He described very clearly what their mission was. These parting words were significant. But these parting words are for us as his people today as well.